This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I am Lee Randall. I'm over the moon to be sitting on a stage with this man. I never thought that would happen. Before I officially introduce Greg Proops to you, the man who needs no introduction, I'm just going to do the housekeeping. If you cannot take too many pictures, <laughs> use any flash, use your phones while we're chatting away, there will be an ample period for questions and answers, at which point the house lights will come up, and then it'll be less disturbing to your fellow, fellow audience members if you pull out your phone and say, they are amazing, this is so great, I've never been in such a good book event. Um, yeah, it's about... I don't care what you do. <laughs> Smoke, drink, whatever you want. Oh yeah, now we're all going to, the place will be shut down. Um, <laughs> Won't that be fun? Then we'll be in the paper. <laughs> then I'll finally get back on TV here, it'll be great. <laughs> I knew this would Let's happen. Let's have a riot. <laughs> he will be signing books afterwards. So, um, if and you touching you appropriately. There you go. See? I, I knew this would be one event I wouldn't have to prepare for. Um, Greg Preparation. Is, is obviously so well known in this country for his appearances at the Fringe and on television and whose line is it anyway. He's also been a voice actor, if you've ever seen Phantom Menace or The Nightmare Before Christmas. That, I didn't actually realize that because I'd not seen either of those movies. Um, but tonight, we're talking <laughs> about The Smartest Book in the World, which is based on his very successful podcast, The Smartest Man in the World. Which I'll be doing later tonight at the Gilded Balloon. Good plug. Rolling Stone called them some of the boldest on the podcasting frontier. And as you know, Rolling Stone is the measure of anything. <laughs> I'm, I feel like I'm being heckled during my own introduction. No, you're not. Um, I appreciate the praise. It's so difficult to come by. Th the book is full of juicy history, um, poetry, baseball facts and fantasies, movie tips, powerful women, and more baseball. Um, but before we get into the baseball, why a podcast? Uh, well, uh, about five years ago, uh, a couple of cats in L.A. came up to me and they said, uh, they do a couple of other podcasts, they produce them, and they asked me to do a podcast, and I was like, will anyone listen? And they went, yeah. And I think I got in at the right time, because uh, in the States five years ago, podcasting was just burgeoning, and now it's explosive, I think. Uh, we, we get on our podcast about, I don't know, 50,000, 60,000 downloads a week, somewhere between 250,000, 300,000 hits a month. And I'm just a little boutique operation. But the biggest podcasts in the States, like WTF by Mark Maron or Adam Carolla or Joe Rogan, probably get several million hits a week. So they're doing better business than most TV uh, networks are uh, at this point, especially the cable ones. So it's become a going concern in the States. And it's a fantastic vehicle uh, to get your comedy across to fans. Uh, and no, I, I don't love the word fans. To the people who want to hear it. And uh, it's a very direct way because people listen on earbuds or in their car or wherever they are, making tea, whatnot, gardening. Some, one woman told me she rides her horse and listens to the show. Uh, so it's, it's a one-on-one -on -one experience. Like, it's like talking on the phone 
with uh, the audience as opposed to addressing a giant group at, at once. And the intimacy and the honesty of it uh, are overwhelming. And after I did the first one and I wasn't sure what to do, my wife Jennifer said, this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. uh, do a podcast. Uh, so we've carried on doing it and we've been all around the world with it. Uh, this week we're in Edinburgh and then next week, or uh, Sunday, London, and then uh, Amsterdam later in the week. And then I go back home and I go to Boston immediately. And then we'll be in Canada later uh, next month. So I, I'm, I try to go everywhere uh, with it. And, um, and that's the fun of it. It's portable. But aren't quite a few podcasts just recorded quietly in a studio instead of live in front of an audience as you do yours? Almost all of them. Two or three guys uh, will go out and do them live. Uh, Doug Benson does his live. Um, occasionally, Chris Hardwick will do his live. Adam Carolla and whatnot. But um, I try to do mine live uh, in front of an audience every time because, one, I have an enormous ego. And uh, I want, thank you for laughing. I uh, wasn't as big a laugh as I wanted, but there you are. Uh, I was hoping for irony, but I, you know, we're in a yurt. Um, the, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 so I like to do it live for the feedback because I think that it keeps me honest. Because uh, you know when you're not being funny. Uh, when you're in front of a live crowd, because they let you know, just like now. And, uh, <laughs> and I, 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 get, I get a lot more out of it doing it live. Yeah. I do them occasionally at home when I can't get a gig, but uh, um, mo mo I think a lot of people like to control, but a lot of people's podcasts are interview situations, yeah. and I don't interview anyone. Uh, I just spiel, or as we would say here, haver. And uh, uh, if you're Latin, discorsa. Uh, we just uh, blather, so, or blether, if you will. And uh, uh, so it, it's easier for me to do it in front of a live crowd. And mm -hmm. uh, before the show, people, I talked to everybody before the show, not here today for some reason, they want us sequestered, but uh, at, at the podcast, I will talk to everybody before the show. And people give me ideas, and I'll just go on and do those, you know, or we'll talk about a subject, or they'll give me a book or an object or something, and um, that becomes the show. Well, that's brilliant. So it's a fun way to do it. Yeah, it's more yeah. organic. Excuse me. So many things that are in the book, like all the baseball teams. There's a Roman Emperor baseball team. There's a Kings and Queens of England baseball team. England is a country uh, just south of here, uh, <laughs> run by a very evil man in horrible jeans and loafers. And uh, you've heard of him. And uh, I think his name is Snamrin. And anyway, uh, he... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, those, were, those were from audience questions. So people would get up and go, give me your all-time Kings and Queens of England baseball team. So that's I, how I made them up. I have a team question for later, but first I want you to tell me, how did you get to know all this? I mean, why are you so smart? Where did this come well, from? How much time do you spend reading? I read the encyclopedia as a child. Me you? too. Okay, well. Didn't you love doing that? Yeah, I did. Well, see, but I love freaking out my parents and saying, oh, that's on page. And they're like, you read the encyclopedia? I'm like, yeah, well, what else am I going to do? <laughs> right? I mean, I think that's one thing that's missing. People go, oh my God, with the internet and the phone, you have instant access to everything. But not the way we did when we were kids yeah, because you volumes, yeah, yeah, volumes. And I'd go, and, oh, there's N, and just open it up and start reading out of it. Um, mostly, uh, uh, I... I didn't really study very well in school, and I never graduated college. And my message, if there's any young people here today, is to, of course, skip school entirely. You won't learn anything. And uh, <laughs> uh, school is to put you in a box and make you learn how to not think. And mm -hmm. I think that it's life that teaches you how to think. And um, uh, comics always ask me, oh, how do you get started in comedy? What should you do and whatnot? And the idea is to fail, because as you know in your life, uh, failure teaches you everything. When you succeed, you're like, oh, I did that great. I don't have to learn a damn thing. Uh, as soon as it all goes to hell, then you're like, got to fix that. Uh, and uh, so that's the best way to learn how to be a comic is uh, mm -hmm. to go on stage a million times and die. Um, and, and yeah, because that's, that's where you learn how to be funny. Uh, if you were funny the first time you went on stage, because uh, people go, well, aren't you scared to go up there? Aren't you embarrassed? Aren't you humiliated? No, I'm not. As I said, I have a huge ego. One, two. 
Uh, you have to want to do it, which I do. And three, please don't cough during while I'm talking. Sorry. And um, three, uh, you, you, you have to, uh, uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, being on stage is where I feel in control. Like in real life, if I have to talk to my manager or I have to talk to a lawyer or I have to talk to like the guy who cuts the trees at my house or whatever, I'm intimidated. I don't know what to do. I'm adrift. Uh, uh, I, 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 you know, I become shy and, 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 I, and I'm not you know, in control. Uh, but as soon as you give me a microphone and put me in front of people, then it's my way or the highway. And uh, it's, a, it's a certain kind of fool, I grant you, uh, that wants to act like that. But uh, that's where I'm coming from, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the book, you write, the toughest part of any comedian's job is making baseball likable and interesting to people who aren't middle-aged white guys, to which I would add, and if they're British? That's like, you know, going to New York and starting talking about cricket. We're all like, huh? Right. Well, so, for so an English so crowd. There's a, a lot of baseball in this book, so uh, the Scottish and English and maybe Welsh and Irish people, how are you going to convince them about baseball? Well, it's not so much uh, uh, that I want you to all be baseball fans. It's that for me, baseball is an analogous thing to everything. Baseball is my big metaphor because, uh, uh, you know, for instance, in your life, uh, every day you have to do something. And baseball is a long season. It's seven, eight months long or whatever. And they play 162 games. And so one of the things baseball players say when they lose is, we play every day. And that's how I feel about being a comedian. Um, if you fail and it's horrible and they hate you, which happens, uh, I don't know if you were at the show the other night, and uh, <laughs> uh, the, the gig is we play every day. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I find that that works for me. And then the putting together all the historical and all the other different baseball teams works as a, way, as a, mm -hmm. a device to do that. Um, it, it, I think it's a matter of like, everyone knows what they grew up with, whether it was uh, rugby or footy or, or whatever sport it is you like, if you're Irish, hurling, whatever that is. Um, and uh, 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 we all know when we were first taken to a game or when we heard a game, or even if sports aren't important to you, you know uh, that experience of going to things. Uh, my father and I had a rocky relationship because um, he was a, how do I say this, a son of a bitch. And uh, <laughs> so uh, it was, uh, he took me to hundreds of baseball games and that was the one thing we could always communicate about. Mm. And it was the one thing until he died uh, that we could get on the phone and talk about baseball. Mm. And we didn't have to talk about our relationship or life or anything like that. Uh, and so th there's that leveler, I think. Um, and I find that when I meet people in bars in America and Canada and whatnot, mm -hmm. and I have conversations about baseball, it doesn't matter if they're a fascist or whatever they are, uh, you can still communicate with them on that level. <laughs> so I, I think everyone understands since yeah. people are tittering. Uh, I tried explaining once, because in Britain, I've learned now to talk about the weather. Yeah. Um, but I tried, I've tried explaining to people that being from New York, in New York, if somebody asks you a two-personal question, you look into the sky and say, so, how about those Mets? Yeah. But nobody here, you, so here you have to go, so, think it'll rain? Right. <laughs> and then uh, the, qu the answer is yes in about an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be a sideways, physics-defying dream <laughs> that goes into your eyes and, and makes your, you know, gonads seek shelter in an internal organ they have no business being in. Uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be raining here soon, I'm sure. I wonder... Could you share with the audience some of the wit and wisdom of Satchel Paige? Because oh. that, that chapter had me actually weeing myself. Laughing. I'll try to not be incontinent today. Well, that was the, uh, that was the other thing about uh, uh, writing about baseball was mostly, I have a hero named Satchel Paige. And um, as you know, in America, uh, race relations are very, very progressive in my country. And um, 
We didn't allow black people to play baseball in the big professional leagues until 1947, which every year, and Jackie Robinson, who I'm sure you've heard of, is the first uh, black American baseball player that got to play. He played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And every year, uh, when it's the anniversary of the first game he played in, baseball celebrates it. Instead of having a day of shame, where we all wear <laughs> sackcloth and ashes, and, and rue the day that we're so racist. Instead, it's, hey, baseball, let a black guy play. And we're supposed to celebrate ourselves home. By the way, he was the only one uh, until the end of the season, by which there were a few others. In any case, Satchel Paige had played in the Negro Leagues, where they had been segregated to. And he played there for some 30 years before he was allowed to play baseball. When he finally got into the big leagues, he was somewhere around 42, 43. No one really knew. And he wouldn't tell anyone. One of my favorite quotes is that he said, I've said it once, I've said it a million times, I'm 40 years old. Uh, <laughs> because he's the one who said, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? And uh, uh, Satchel Paige said many, many wise things. And uh, so he was a hero of mine. He wasn't the first black baseball player to play in the major leagues. Uh, he got in the year after Jackie Robinson. But he was the first black player to uh, pitch in the World Series. He was the first black pitcher to play in the All-Star game. And, um, he was a very funny guy. He got through the racism and the horrible segregation of his life uh, with humor and aplomb. And he did something else that I want to touch on ever so briefly. He knew his own worth as a business entity in a white world. In other words, he barnstormed, right, which is what black players did. They had organized teams, but they also went out on their own. And he had a team called the Satchel Page All-Stars, and he played for millions of other teams. They had their own plane that said Satchel Page All-Stars on it, their own uniform that said Page's All-Stars. And he uh, negotiated his own contracts with everyone. So he got half the gate everywhere he went, right? He got the, the door, and uh, he only pitched three innings a good deal of the time, and there would be a sign-up that says, Satchel Page pitching today, guaranteed to strike out the side of your money back. And then he'd get out on the mound, and he'd have the infield sit down, or the outfield sit down, or all the players leave the field, and he'd play alone against the batter. Yeah, that was the kind of jazz he did. He threw so hard that he wrote the word fastball on his shoe, so that when he pitched, the you knew what was coming, right? Fastball, here it comes, baby. And that was the kind of outrageous character he was. He had no education. Like Babe Ruth, another famous poor person who made it in the United States, um, he was in a children's prison when he was little. Uh, it, uh, the, the history of America is taking poor people and incarcerating them, and then teaching them a craft, and then somehow they're supposed to succeed. Yes. Because the great lie of American culture is if you work hard enough, you can succeed, which is if you'll pardon the expression, absolute bullshit. If, if you're rich enough, you'll carry on succeeding. Uh, and if you're poor, like anywhere else in the world, good for you. Uh, but Satchel Page did, and that's why he's my hero, and that's why he's in the book. And he had a, he has a lot of good quotes, and if I had marked them, I would read them to you. Oh, sorry. Have you marked any of them? Uh, I'm might, sure there's a chapter in here. I might have turned down that page. I'll find one. Uh, God, he's not even in the bloody index? Not the smartest book in the world, then, is it? And, <laughs> thank you. So annoying that you got the first round of applause. Oh, look at us fumbling like idiots. Oh, Christ. I've, uh, here it is, Baseball 3. Yeah, I'll be 35 this year, and as long as I, uh, I can only pitch as long as Satchel Page, that gives me 35 more years. That was another pitcher named Tug McGraw. Uh, he was married several times. Sometimes he knew he was married, sometimes not. Um, yeah, Satchel Page put it about, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he, what was it? Uh, I'm not married, but I'm in demand. Uh, and he said, uh, I never threw an illegal pitch. The trouble is, once in a while, I toss one that ain't never been seen by this generation. And uh, let's see here. 
uh, when, everybody's, when everybody's calling you ageless, you got time for those comebacks. <laughs> and then, of course, his famous How to Stay Young. It was a magazine article he did in the 50s, and he never really said these things in this order. But uh, as they say in the movie um, Liberty Valance, when the uh, legend ex uh, exceeds the truth, print the legend, right? Yeah. So he said, uh, how to stay young, avoid fried meats that anger up the blood. If your stomach disputes you, lie down and pacify it with cool thoughts. Keep the juices flowing by jangling around gently as you move. Go very light on the vices, such as carrying on in society. The social ramble ain't restful. Number five, avoid running at all times. <laughs> this is from a professional athlete. <laughs> who literally pitched for 50 years. And it's number six, and this is the famous one, and many of you might know it, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. <laughs> so part of why I wanted to even write the book was because I wanted to get Satchel Page out there yeah. uh, and the Negro Leagues, uh, because I think they're all brave people. There's very few of them left now um, in the United States that were alive, because um, the league basically disintegrated by the late 50s. Yeah. Uh, but it was the heart and soul of the black community in America for years. Uh, 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 the players would go to the clubs afterward, the jazz clubs, or particularly the Crawford Grill in Pittsburgh, which I mentioned in the book, because uh, he played for the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and Duke Ellington would be playing there, or Count Basie. Lena Horne, the famous singer's father, was a numbers runner, and Lena Horne was a waitress at the club, and they used to count the money upstairs. So it, it's a real integral yeah. part of American society, and one that gets kind of skipped over in favor of uh, you know, white guy history where George Bush is a leader and stuff. <laughs> What's that about? What that's about is that there's no lie big enough, as Noam Chomsky said, that the New York Times won't put on the front page. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think we canonized the wrong people, you know. Yeah. So the book was kind of a small attempt to canonize some other people. You have this fabulous, one of your fantasy baseball teams, my personal favorite, is the Bombshells, Doxies, and Dames. And it's on page 35. That one I did write down. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Now, having seen the team, which I'll get you to read out, I'm just wondering what that game is like. The what? Uh, having seen the team, I'm wondering how the game plays out. Oh, this is the hottest game of all time. Um, my editor, Matthew Benjamin, helped me a lot with uh, some of the different chapters in the book because I was like, uh, how do I put... Uh, he, he asked me to define bombshell, right? What a, a, a bombshell is. And I couldn't. I was going crazy, I was racking my brain, I was pacing the halls, I was drinking. And, uh, and then I was smoking dope and then I was drinking. Uh, and then I was watching old movies and then I was drinking. And uh, then I, I'd stare at the book, I'd glower at it, like Dylan glowers at the Bible in his room, you know. And uh, uh, I didn't write. And so I thought, we'll do a baseball team of it. I'll read you a couple of goodies uh, out of it, let's see here. Uh, Diana Rigg, because uh, Diana Rigg is such a fabulous uh, actress and a, um, an unbelievable Bombshell. I put it at first base because she's tall. Uh, tall, dark, and awesome, Miss Emma Peel from The Avengers regularly makes the polls as the hottest TV character of all time in the United States. Uh, she was in a total of 51 episodes of The Avengers. That's making an impression. Uh, let's see here. She causes you, a feminist icon in every way, she causes you to resign your post as head of the English department because she said she might meet you for a smoke in the rose bushes. <laughs> the first bag is hers to defend. She calls this game rounders. Uh, let's see. Bridget Bardot at third. Bardot's body deserves a monument in the town square. Her body is a monument in the town square. Uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, I, so I put in all, uh, some of the... Hedy Lamarr. Uh, oh, I don't know if anybody remembers Hedy Lamarr. Woman. Absolutely stunning uh, actress uh, from the 30s and 40s. And um, she was the most beautiful woman in films. Before she was uh, in American films, she was the most beautiful woman in Europe. Um, 
She was a bewitching Viennese Jewish girl who married a fascist arms dealer. How were your teenage years? <laughs> Hetty scandalized pictures by cavorting nude and having an on-screen close-up, I know there's children here, an on-screen close-up orgasm in a Czech film called Ecstasy. She made her way to Hollywood and was ravishing all through the 40s. Along the way, she teamed up with her neighbor, the avant-garde composer George Antiel, and, to get, and they decided to invent and patent a frequency-hopping spread spectrum device to keep enemies from jamming torpedoes. It's the basis for what we now call Bluetooth <laughs> and loads of cell phone communication. So she was a genius as she well was amazing. as a bombshell. Yeah. Her exotic looks made men jelly. Her brain made men jam. She, thank you. She, <laughs> she starts the double play and finishes you and then invents instant replay. Uh, so I, I don't know, I, I picked all these uh, different women for different reasons. Um, uh, uh, because, and then someone said, oh, it's sexist that you're judging women on their looks. But oh, I, God, I think bombshell's an outstanding category. And yes, all the women so in I here... I would be happy to be a bombshell. You are a bombshell, oh. my darling. Uh, Pam Greer from all the exploitation movies. Um, I got Marilyn Monroe in there as a designated hitter. Um, <laughs> could only be brought down by a dynasty. <laughs> oh, walk it off, Scotland. <laughs> and then the, the newest one is Angelina Jolie. I made her the owner of the team. Angelina is a real-world bombshell, married to male bombshell Brad Pitt, whom we imagine and hope she leads around on a string. <laughs> she flies herself around the globe doing good, giving massively to charity, and forcing world leaders to acknowledge the poor. That is bombshell sexy. Uh, super fox and unfeasibly thin. She's a superhero for being a mensch. A mensch is a human being. I don't presume that you don't know what it is, but I know that Yiddish doesn't go a long way up here in uh, the Lothian regions. <laughs> uh, uh, in a world of shallow blambinas. And yes, they contested me on the word blambina. They were like, don't you mean bimbo? And I'm like, no, I mean blambina. Yeah. Well, what's a blambina? It's a word I made up, so bite well, it. Exactly, what's the matter with that? Her tattoos will confuse you unless you read Cambodian. <laughs> Hollywood is far too tiny a playground for her interests. She needs a world to change the village. As uh, Gilbert and Sullivan might have said, she's the very model of a modern major bombshell. She owns the club and you. Uh, I, want, I want to ask you a question. Yes. And it fits in nicely with the charge of sexism. I put down the book and I said, this is one of the most feminist straight men I've ever, you know, come across. This is just the most amazing and I just wonder did you have a road to Damascus radicalization or were you brought up to be a feminist like Paul yes exactly. have an epiphany well he was Saul at the time but yeah he was yeah. he was Saul then right then he was Paul yeah. I know right then you then you get an Irish Catholic name <laughs> first you're Jewish and then you're Paul you know uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but, but, but it, it I had a Jewish agent once in Hollywood named Bruce Smith <laughs> that is changing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, no, uh, my wife Jennifer has changed my viewpoint on everything. Uh, she's led me to understand uh, where women are coming from, uh, how men have uh, a decided advantage in this world, how male privilege is uh, a birthright that we don't even bother to examine. And so I think her most of all. Uh, uh, has changed my mind. Uh, she was my road to Damascus. And uh, also my father, on top of being not that nice, uh, was a horrible misogynist. And mm. I never understood it. He would say terrible things about women. And I'd be like, why? 
What, what's your problem? Women have done nothing but be nice to you and put up with your jazz uh, your whole life. So mm -hmm. um, I think from a, as a, from a child onward, I was like, mm, I'm not buying that. And then being a comedian, um, and particularly I've been a comedian a long time now. We're into <clears throat> 30 something years. And um, uh, as you know, stand-up comedy, particularly some time ago, was awfully misogynist. It's, it's improving gradually. Mm -hmm. But it's not the most egalitarian craft. No. Uh, it was largely dominated by men. Uh, now, thank God, it's not as much. Uh, and I had to live through a zillion jokes about my girlfriend so fat and other horrible things. And so it really rubbed me the wrong way. And I've stopped all doing that in my act yeah. uh, um, because I just think it's regressive. Mm -hmm. And not only that, it's tone deaf. Uh, and not only that, it's insulting. And there's been a lot of talk about PC and political correctness and stuff like that. And I'm all for it. Um, uh, there was some comics complaining in America a couple of weeks ago. Oh, well, I can't play colleges anymore because they're too politically correct. How about this? It's called being sensitive <laughs> to other people and their feelings. Um, white guys have dominated long enough, and we've all heard our story. Uh, and it's a time for other people to be heard. So I don't buy the whole, you know, like Donald Trump. I don't know if anyone watched the first debate. We had a, a kind of a circus <laughs> sideshow where a bunch of men got on stage and acted like they were qualified to do anything. And... Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump is running for president. Uh, it would be like uh, if, if Rupert Murdoch's afterbirth ran for president <laughs> and had a horrible beaver on its head. <laughs> and um, uh, four failed marriages, five bankruptcies, four deferments to, from Vietnam. There's nothing he doesn't know about success. <laughs> and uh, he, he uh, was asked, because uh, he's very sexist, and he he'd called Rosie O'Donnell, who's an American comedian, a pig and a dog and stuff because she's overweight. And Megyn Kelly, uh, the interlocutor, uh, you know, whatever, uh, asked him a question about that. And he went, I don't go with this political correctness. And it's always that Jeremy Clarkson excuse, isn't it? Um, I want to be racist, and I want to be sexist, and I want to be evil and mean and horrible to people. But you know what? Society won't let me do it enough. <laughs> and it's like, you've had your way a million years. And I don't like to prof be profane, but shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> no one has trammeled Jeremy Clarkson at any point. He's a millionaire, warmongering, right-wing, car-driving, horrible, loose-perm asshole. And in the audience. <laughs> he knows what he is. I don't think he'd disagree with me. No. I was in Sicily once with my wife and, uh, uh, and my girlfriend and, uh, and my boyfriend. What a time we had. And we were out, I was out at the pool by myself, or at the, the patio and whatnot, and I was having a drink. And Jeremy Clarkson came out because he was there with some car rally. They were taking cars through Palermo, right? This is the kind of things he gets up to. And uh, I, I, he got on the phone, and he was wearing uh, deck shoes with no socks, and he sat there with his perm, and he talked really loud on the phone. Oh, yes, we're having a bit of trouble. There's so much traffic here in Palermo. We can't get through. I don't know why we've even come here. And then I watched him pay his check, and he didn't leave a tip. And I thought, you really make me sick. Like, you can't recognize the smallest person in the world means nothing to you. And then he has the nerve to complain that he's being curtailed in his expression. Um, he has a column in the Times. He's written a thousand books. At what point was he curtailed? And these guys will just keep telling you that they're being trammeled, that Donald Trump's being, oh my God, I'm on a short leash. You know, it's like- I'd it like just, it to be a little shorter. Right? How about a choke chain? Yeah. We could go with that. None of this is in the book, by the way, but um, 
No, there's a chapter on feminism. There's a chapter on women. At the beginning, I say women will be spelled with a capital W, and I go into all the reasons why. And, uh, um, well, let's see here. Um, Germany, New England, Argentina, India, Chile, Brazil, Pakistan, the UK, Ireland, Canada, Australia have had women leaders. The USA has not. We have a woman running for president right now named Hillary Clinton. And you hear a lot of things about Hillary Clinton, like she did this evil email thing that was to destroy the universe. <laughs> and uh, there's a guy named Bernie Saunders running who's from the smallest state in the world. And uh, uh, a lot of my liberal friends in the states can't believe that I'm for Hillary Clinton. They're like, how can you be for her, man? She's a corporate shill and stuff like that. I'm like, Bernie Saunders is 73 and he's from Vermont. <laughs> He has no black people in his electorate. There are five people in the state of Vermont. He does not represent me. He does not represent anyone. Um, is he a nice person and a liberal? Sure, I'm sure he is. Um, Hillary Clinton's the best qualified person that's run for president in the last 30 years. There's no question of that. And it's time that we have a woman leader, an intelligent, cogent, coherent, realistic woman leader. Uh, not a pretend woman leader. Uh, you know, Sarah Palin ran and everybody made fun of her and all that. But Sarah Palin was an intellectual failure. She, she didn't know what Kazakhstan was. When they had a meeting with her after they made her vice president, they're like, okay, let's talk about foreign affairs. And she's like, what's Kazakhstan? Like, not where is it, what is it? <laughs> Whereas Hillary, I think you'll find, has been around the world many times, been to every country, uh, was secretary of state, was a senator, was first lady. Her qualifications are impeccable. And people get on me and they're like, I can't believe you're for Hillary. And I'm like, I, and then they'll say things, I can't believe you're voting for her just because she's a woman. And my response is, I can't believe you're voting for Bernie Sanders just because he's an old white guy. Mm. Well, so exactly. I've had enough of it, really. What? I'm with you. As Gwen Stefani said, I've had it up to here. <laughs> but in the proopocracy, you've, you've, got, you've got your list, you've, you've kind of you're building up to the first hundred days of the if, if I ruled the country and I wondered you've got some hilarious things you would do as leader of well, the leader of the free world. Someone on the podcast wrote me a letter uh, several weeks ago and suggested that uh, what would a Proops administration, a Proop dog administration be like? <laughs> what would the first hundred days be like? And on the first day, I would make the Equal Rights Amendment law of America, right? And that makes men and women equal. It was shot down in the 70s. Uh, we, the Constitution of the United States says men are created equal, not that men and women are created equal. They had a chance, the Founding Fathers, uh, which is a horrible phrase, um, how about the founding slave owners uh, had a chance to write women in, and they didn't do it. Uh, Alexander Hamilton argued for it. Jefferson shot him down. So uh, they had every chance. By the way, when America was started, we could have freed the slaves and made women equal right then. It only took two sentences to do it, right, in the Declaration of Independence. We didn't do it. And we've been paying for it ever since. Uh, and so the first thing I would do is be that. And then I said on day seven, I would bathe in the hatred that's being washed upon me. Uh, <laughs> Last night, we were up to like number 72, and I said I would build a bulletproof fence around the White House uh, because I, I would enforce gun laws, and I would make the corporations pay their fair share. Uh, the first thing I would do after the Equal Rights Amendment is go after all the banks, mortgage companies, and financial institutions and jail the people who led us to this horrible past. Yeah, I'm with you there. People complained about the Occupy movement and that it did nothing. That's not true at all. It galvanized America. Obama was re-elected off the back of the Occupy movement. I guarantee you that. Secondly, um, the Occupy movement has transmogrified and morphed into a group that buys up people's personal debt, which is an enormous issue, as you know, and uh, buys up people's personal debt in the United States. And uh, th thirdly, I'm losing my train of thought, but the point is this. Uh, 
there were lots of people who uh, protested uh, in the Occupy movement who were thrown to the ground, tear gas, jailed, had to go through the legal process. Not one banker from HSBC, from NatWest, from Lloyds, from AIG, from Shearson Lehman, not one was ever perp-walked, not one was ever incarcerated, not one was ever put in jail, and they all gave themselves bonuses after the world economy bailed them out, and that's our money, that's our money. If you fail personally as a person, no one bails you out. If you fail as a giant corporation, then well, they're too big, <laughs> and that's because white men are running the whole thing, and friends of white men, and they want to keep that dominant paradigm going where the 1% control everything. And if it sounds like I'm running for office, I'm not. Uh, I would never want to hold office because you have to say yes to too many people and I'm not that kind of girl. <laughs> but I do believe that the rich have it their way and that they, <coughs> they want to <coughs> perpetuate uh, this notion that they're not having it their way. <coughs> that somehow <coughs> we have no right to complain. I remember when the Occupy movement was going on in London, they were uh, protesting outside St. Paul's and the bishop at St. Paul's was taking a private car to work every day. This is a holy person who's in charge of the church. No poor people are allowed to sleep in St. Paul's no, at all. No. They don't house the poor. Uh, and the big complaint was they were urinating everywhere. And my line was, well, that was what it was. It was site-specific. If the Occupy movement hadn't urinated on lawns, they wouldn't have been beaten to the ground and arrested. Um, uh, they didn't have the key to the executive washroom. Yeah like all the people who work at the corporations do. Uh, if only the head of HSBC had defecated outside in a park, then he might have gone to jail. Because <laughs> uh, evidently that was the big dividing line. And, uh, you know, it was, and then they, they tore down their encampment outside St. Paul, the one in New York, in Zuccotti yeah. Park. Yeah. The cops came in and literally knocked it down and rolled everyone over and beat them up and put them in jail. And these are just poor people expressing our First Amendment right, which guarantees the right to public assembly to, uh, to petition the government for redress of grievances. And uh, I hope I can count on your vote in November. <laughs> I know I'm not I a citizen of the you. UK. And by the way, you did the right thing with labor. <laughs> There's nothing in it for you. I know it reelected Cameron, but you know what? Hey. Okay. Maybe. Although I don't know why you didn't go, you could have been Norway, you know what I mean? You've got the oil, goddammit. <laughs> I would just have loved to have seen just a big checkpoint in Darlington, you know what I mean? <laughs> and asking English people for their passports and shaking them down, you know? And where do you live in London? And what's your business up here? That was a Scottish accent, by the way. I think this would be a good time for a poem. There's a great deal of poetry. <laughs> There's a great deal of poetry. Thank you for shifting gears. Book. Yes, Lee. I'm shifting gears. I don't want you to have to be on the campaign trail the whole hour. <laughs> I love talking about it. I never shut up. Why so much poetry? What well, uh, there's a quote in here by JFK uh, and uh, famous uh, poet. Famous poet John F. Kennedy. Um, he said, uh, "Where power corrupts, poetry cleanses." And uh, I feel like. We're all very caught up in our day-to-day -day existence. Life is difficult. Uh, people let you down. People die. Uh, it's, it's horrible to make it day by day. But there's poetry all around us, and it's important to realize that and look up occasionally from your phone and realize that there's the moon and the stars. And um, in America, people don't do it very often. It's a lot easier here in Edinburgh because the setting is so stunning here. Um, 
you just walk around the town and there's Arthur's Cedar, there's a castle looming over you, or there's Calton Hill, or there's a seagull attacking your food, or, uh, you know, or a drunk person with a tin of executive lager vomiting toward you, you know, it's just, it's everywhere around you. Or the tram comes by and you look at it and you go, oh, that costs 10 billion pounds and there's no one on it. And so there's all these things, you know, uh, and you hear ding, ding, and then you, oh, boy, but that what, how, how ex exciting to build a toy train set for a whole town. Yeah. That only drives on a tiny bit of track. Yeah. Back and forth. P people would rather ride a Lothian bus than get on the tram, and I love that about Scotland. So I think there's poetry all around, and I think it's very important. Now, I tried to put a bunch of different poems in the book, but uh, I ended up, uh, and I didn't do too badly, I ended up with Ovid and Shakespeare and Sappho and Emily Dickinson, because uh, Touchstone and Simon and & Schuster, and we have a representative from them here tonight, uh, as much as I appreciate them doing the book, wouldn't pay to clear poems that were recent. So my chapter on Lorca didn't get in. Uh, but, um, excuse me, as I say, uh, there is a bunch of poetry in the book, and uh, I, I thank you for asking about that. Only women ask about the poetry. Very few men ask about it. Really? Yep. Um, most male radio uh, personalities in the United States, first question is, how come you're the smartest man in the world? <laughs> because um, men do a thing called um, dick measuring. Yeah. Whereas almost every woman goes, I get it. You're not the smartest man in the world, it's a joke, we get it. <laughs> but men are like, I'm smart too! But yeah, uh, women, women always go, I really appreciate there's a lot of poetry. And men are always like, there's a lot of, there's too much baseball. I don't like baseball. I like shooting stuff. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to read you a poem that ain't in the book. It's real short. Don't worry about it. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks is a black poetess. Uh, she is now gone. Um, she was a fabulous woman. If you ever want to look her up, you, of course, can go to all the poetry sites and she's there. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks wrote this poem. I, I, I'm white, so I know nothing of the black experience, but as you know, the black experience has a profound effect on all Americans. Um, our culture comes from uh, uh, New Orleans and Memphis and, uh, uh, and Texas and New York City and Chicago and St. Louis and uh, uh, the chess records. And, you know, if America has anything to be proud of, it's jazz and rock and roll and poetry and rap music because they swept the world and they showed that America could be a cultural dynamo. Uh, that's the thing that America should be real proud of. Um, that and, of course, Dick Cheney's wild accomplishments. Um, oh, and we've made war with every country that has oil. Um, but as one Canadian friend said to me, you, you guys start a lot of wars, eh? And I'm like, you have to understand, these are wars of liberation. We're liberating oil from countries that are hiding it from us. <laughs> we... Uh, yeah, they had weapons of mass destruction. Obviously, our weapons are weapons of growth and nurturing. Uh, but this is a poem about young black kids shooting pool, and it's called We Real Cool. Uh, the pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool. We left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We Thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. That's I love that yeah, poem. Yeah, it's a wonderful poem. And she's a wonderful poet. Uh, I put a lot of books in because I like books. Uh, and they asked me to do, they wanted me to do like synopsis of the books. And it turned into from synopsis of the books to 
a quote from the book, the shortest review in the world of the book, and then a synopsis of the author, which mm -hmm. worked out much better, I thought, uh, because so everyone is, has an opinion on books. Yeah, some of your favorite authors. Uh, Cormac McCarthy's one of my favorite authors. In his real life, I think he's a thoroughgoing fascist. Uh, but it just proves that you can read someone who disagrees with you utterly on a lot of fundamental things and still enjoy them. Um, he wrote a book called Blood Meridian, and um, it's a cowboy book, but it's an anti-Western. It takes place right after the Mexican-American War, which was our Vietnam of the 19th century. That's the one that Thoreau and uh, 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 all the people at Walden were so up and Walt Whitman were so uh, adamant about. Uh, it was our Carthage, if you will. Uh, if we're the Roman Empire, then the, the, the first blow we struck against the world was invading Mexico uh, and trying to take them over, even though the United States had, uh, more than half of it had been owned by Mexico for about 500 years. Um, this, of course, is being written out of American history. Uh, if you watch Donald Trump on TV, all Mexicans are rapists, according to him, a couple of weeks ago, even though they invented America, along with a lot of other people. Uh, in any case, uh, here, here's the synopsis of the book. Uh, a violent tween joins a horrific band of doomed scalp hunters, and the fun starts there. <laughs> Moby Dick in the Old West with beheadings. Uh, it was supposed to be funnier than that, but okay. <laughs> It's a book about scalp hunters, uh, and Cormac McCarthy starts the book um, with an article from a newspaper that uh, discusses a skull that was found, that skull's a million years old, and it had clearly been scalped. And the thesis of the book, which I believe is this, is this. Uh, war was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. Now, I don't know that I believe that. I think it's wildly cynical. But I think there's a, an enormous point to be made there uh, because we never cease with the war, uh, all the time warring on each other. And um, in the book, uh, they pick up a guy, and he's clearly the devil, and that's the devil who says that. And so I like to look at it from that point of view. The devil's point of view is that man was made for war. Um, you can pick up your own point of view on that one. Uh, then there's an awesome book called Bruges la Mort by Georges Rodenbach. And if you ever go to Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, you must visit Georges Rodenbach's grave. His tomb is a statue of him, green, leaping from his tomb like this. It's <laughs> absolutely hysterical and really good fun. Uh, Bruges Le Mort's the first book with photographs in it. It has photographs of Bruges, right? And it's very dark and dreary and gray and whatnot. Uh, and um, uh, Rodenbach is a symbolist, right? Like uh, uh, Maeterling or, or D'Annunzio or Muro or Rimbo or, or Ram... I never say his name right. My wife will kill me. R Rambo or uh, Debussy, right? Uh, depressed neurotic weirdo seeks replacement for dead wife, then freaks out when she's an uncontrollable bummer. Uh, and then I talk a lot about Orwell in the book because I think Orwell knew everything uh, about uh, how politics work, real politics. Um, what the point of the government is. Mm. I believe he said uh, power, uh, and the pow that power is the power to inflict pain on other people, and that's what governments want. Uh, they don't want you to make, to make you feel better, and they don't want to govern. They want everyone to suffer all the time, and that's how they know they're a government. Uh, and <laughs> thank you, one person laughed, everyone else went all quiet. Uh, well, you know it's true. Girl, you know it's true. Uh, in 1984, George Orwell said, if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. Um, and the synopsis I give for 1984 is trouble and torture in the... You know what? I'm going to skip that and go to another one here. Uh, I have a dictionary, a proofionary, because you hear words bandied about, particularly on television, a lot. Uh, in the United States, we're functionally illiterate. 
and uh, we don't know what a lot of words mean. And you hear the word oligarchy and uh, things like that on TV. So I thought that I would go through and actually say what they mean, uh, because no one ever tells you. And you can spend your whole adult life hearing the same words all over, over and over again, and no one ever explains to you what they are. And if you miss the first time around, you're too embarrassed to go, what's a junta? Uh, <laughs> later on, right? Uh, so I put a bunch in, um, and I put some of my own in, like possum, uh, adverb, possibly, maybe, might, could, like a nocturnal marsupial, used in a sentence. Could you possum answer the door? It's a possum with ability. <laughs> and there's a picture of a possum that Jennifer drew. Uh, uh, Pollyanna, uh, here, it, uh, right, oh, here's one, kleptocracy. In the United States, what we used to call democracy, it means the government is run by thieves. If you don't, if you don't believe, not believe the United States is a kleptocracy, then you're a Pollyanna. You must now go look up Pollyanna on your own. In a sentence, good morning, Mr. President. That's a fantastically big kleptocracy you've got there. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. The kleptocracy I preside over is adored by the wealthy. Next definition, Pollyanna. Here it is, you shouldn't have to wait. Annoyingly optimistic in the face of reality. In a sentence, the dictionary indicates that Pollyanna rhymes with French Guiana. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That would give even a depressed rhymer the blind optimism of a Pollyanna that you would be required to rhyme French Guiana with anything. Uh, and the one I wanted to get to was Orwellian, right? Because, uh, oh, here's one, feminist. A misunderstood word. Feminism is simply the idea that men and women are equal and should be treated as equals. For some men, this is truly terrifying, like being disagreed with or told no. <laughs> there exists a male rights movement. This is a non-starter. Men have all the rights. Somebody needs to learn to share. In a sentence, this is by Rebecca West. People call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat or a prostitute. Uh, we can move on. I was going to ask. We have about 15 minutes Okay, left. let's do questions. Questions from the audience. Can we turn the house lights up, please, and get a roving mic? We probably... I'll will, just sweat gently at you. We probably will not get to all of your questions, but when you buy the book... Sit down! ...in the bookshop, <laughs> you might be able to ask Greg any residual questions. So, show of hands. Oh, very clever in the first row. Get right in Hi, there. what's your name? Uh, Cameron. Hi, Cameron. <laughs> Thank you. Um, how come a chump like Donald Trump can get such a... A book, such a, um, such a wide coverage as a would-be president when he's obviously cracked. Because the media is desperate right now to have anyone watch them or think that they're relevant in any way. The mainstream media in the United States is run by about four or five giant companies, and uh, they don't really have a lot of... Um, the, the public has lost complete faith in them. And so someone like Donald Trump is like an advertisement for them that they're able to create this candidacy and that they're able to say that he's some sort of viable new mind and that he's not a politician and all that. Also, he's wildly rich and he can fund himself. Uh, he's taken the huge step of not accepting money from all the super PACs and stuff and funding his own election. So basically, we've reached that Roman apotheosis where when Romans ran to be consul or whatever, they gave everyone in Rome money and food, and that's how you did it. You bought your way in, and that's how I perceive his candidacy. I think the media is a lapdog to him because he's good copy, and everyone knows who he is because he's a reality TV star like Kim Kardashian in the United States. And he has... I would say Kim is a more liberal thinking person than him. <laughs> and possibly more intelligent. It was like the Tea Party when the Tea Party started in the United States. It was a constructed party. They made it up. Billionaires, these two brothers called the Koch brothers, uh, or as I call them, the Koch brothers. Uh, 
And then people go, Coke, and I'm like, no, thanks, I gotta work. Um, <laughs> sort of invented this party of angry white people who walk around with guns and flags and funny hats, and they want, and you know, they, the, the problem I have with all these parties is if you could show me a good-looking person that would belong to it, then I'll join, you know what I mean? I've gotta have someone sexy on tech, you know? When it's just ugly people going, I hate everyone, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't wanna join your group. And Donald Trump is one of those people. I think being aggressive and ugly is his, his greatest skill uh, and is what he has to give to the world. And a lot of people really respond to that because fear motivates uh, almost everyone. And I think he's a fearful, he's a fearful candidate in so much as uh, he has absolutely no business running the world. And uh, he's also uh, loves to promote fear in other people. Fear of the other is a biggie, right? And the, you know, the Nazis knew it every, I, don't, I hate to, I always go back to that tired trope, but, uh, Right now, he's demonizing immigrants. And uh, I dare say the Trump family came over on a boat once upon a time. Perhaps a golden boat, but a boat. There's a, there's a question over here that a gentleman with his hand up. Hi, what's your name? Thank you very much. I'm Charles. Hi, Charles. Hi. Um, every August, the world comes to Scotland culturally. Um, what do you think is Scotland's greatest export to the rest of the world as a well-traveled man? Sean <laughs> Sean Connery's 85th birthday yesterday, and uh, I don't know that there's anyone more penetratingly famous from Scotland, uh, including, oh, what was it I read yesterday uh, in a poll from like 10 years ago, he beat Alexander Graham Bell and Andrew Logie Bard as the greatest Scotsman of the 20th century, which is, yeah. But he is. Uh, I mean, someone else would have invented the telephone. <laughs> In fact, someone came into the patent office about six hours after Grambell did and, and tried to patent a telephone. So uh, like film and like recording and like electricity, all those things were in the air and they were all invented at once. Or this, uh, the internal combustion engine, no one invented the car. And Andrew Logie Bard is supposed to have invented TV, but a bunch of people invented TV. Uh, but no one could have invented Sean Connery. He's just a sex machine. Um, <laughs> Having said that, I think that J.K. Rowling uh, is probably the most important person since we're at a book festival uh, in the entire world of publishing because I think she single-handedly, about 10, 15 years ago, saved publishing. Books were about to hit the rocks and uh, she sold so many bloody books that you know, it brought books back, quite frankly, from the brink. And I do uh, improv uh, uh, all over the world, uh, very poorly. And um, I mean, the improv I do, not the world. And, <laughs> Uh, particularly in the United States, I always, uh, one of the things we do when we warm the crowd up is go, who, does anyone have a favorite book? And in the United States, I'm not kidding, Harry Potter is the first book everyone says, and then Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and and I, in some places in America, those are the only two books people know, and I'm not kidding. I'll go, does anyone have a favorite book? And they'll go, Fifty Shades of Grey, and everyone laughs. And then, I, uh, uh, and then they'll go, Harry Potter, and I'll go, is anyone over 11 here? And then I'll go, any other books? And people will be like, Huh. <laughs> and then when we play Pepperdine University, which is a Christian university in Southern California, I'll say, does anyone have a favorite book? And someone will inevitably go, the Bible. And then I'll say, but what about, you know, uh, um, nonfiction? And then what do they do? <laughs> So I think uh, the, the literary heritage of Scotland is unassailable. I was just in the author's yurt uh, where I was, mil <laughs> I was milking a camel and uh, I was talking to Val McDermott and where, where else can that happen? 
You know what I mean? I was excited beyond measure. Last year, I did a, a BBC Scotland show, and in the in the backstage with me was uh, um, uh, uh, Ian Rankin, uh, Alexander McCall Smith, and Ann Cleves. So I mean, and they all live here in this town, and J.K. lives outside of town. And I used to know uh, the the lovely and you did as well, uh, Ian Banks. Uh, I, I wasn't friends with him or nothing, but I interviewed him a couple times, and you know we were acquaintances, and we spoke on the phone, and. Uh, uh, he was a lovely cat, and uh, I think the, the literary heritage of Scotland is astounding, you know. Uh, and my wife was reading me last night that uh, uh, Walter Scott uh, encouraged all these women writers. You know, there's, there's been a... a it, so that's my answer. Okay. We can probably do one more question. Really? That's and, all? and you were fast, so your hand's up. No yeah. women want to talk You've to me. You've only got six you minutes. You can go. Left. See, all the women are leaving early. I'm sure they're getting in the queue for the book oh, buying. Okay. <laughs> My name is Andrew of A Simple Question. After the massive worldwide success of this book, what's your <laughs> next book going <laughs> to I love that question. I'm just going to bask in that question for a moment. Yes, massive worldwide success. Uh, I'm not sure. I think the second one's going to be called The Second Smartest Book in the World. Uh, and uh, I believe I promise at the end of this book uh, more women's stuff, less baseball, uh, and more uh, stuff about uh, women's achievements in general, um, probably more poetry and more literature and stuff. That, that's what I'd like to make it about, at least. Uh, I mean, I could, I've been thinking about not a travel book, but a book about places I've been, ra rather than... Because uh, everybody writes a travel book, you know, and, and I don't want to go, as we chugged along the highway up to Machu Picchu, my thoughts turned to the morning when I was having a cup of tea and I began on this adventure and stuff, and, like, and then all of a sudden you're up inside your own butt. Um, <laughs> I th I'd like to do a book which really lays down the law on the different countries, you know, like, uh, you know, you come to Scotland and people are, are happy and friendly. <clears throat> Which Scotland is that? You go that? to Germany and they have that rich sense of humor. <laughs> you go to France and everyone's so polite. <laughs> go to America and everyone's so well read. You know, that kind of book. Really rip the lid off it. Go to England and people are like, howdy, neighbor. But you do travel a lot, so where do you really like to, where do you like to hang out? Not that we're going to follow you there. Well, Edinburgh. I mean, I've, I've been coming here, this is my, oh God, the first year I came here was 1989. I was uh, seven. And, uh, and, uh, uh, but we've come here almost every year since 93. I've probably been here, I don't know, 18, 20 times. And uh, I love it here. I get, I get a react. I was saying to my wife last night, uh, uh, we uh, the crowd was largely Scottish that was in last night for my podcast because I can't get anyone to come to my show. And, uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, and I can, um, the thing I found about coming here all these years, and I know that sentimentality is not appreciated here, so I'm not going to be sentimental, but I will say this. I, I can communicate with Scottish people directly. I, for some reason, I have a comedy connection to Scotland that I don't have anywhere else. Um, I can lay it down for Scottish people and they get it immediately and it comes right back to me. And that, that's something you can't create. I didn't know that it was going to happen when I first came here. And uh, it's been completely organic. And so that's why I love to come here. Um, I, uh, people treat me really nicely here, which is uh, fantastic considering it's Scotland. And um, <laughs> they don't do that for everybody. No? no. <laughs> Sometimes people will give me a chip fork or a serviette if I ask for it. 
Uh, I'm waiting to get a cold drink because one day you're going to turn the fridge up. <laughs> I know it costs money, so you're kind of, uh, it's cold enough. And you dole out the ice here like it's emeralds or something. I'm not, as far as I'm understanding, it's just frozen water, you guys. You could go to Norway, they give you all the ice you like, you know, and whatnot. Uh, I like Paris a lot. And a lot of people ask me, but why Paris, Greg? And I'm like, because when the gig's over, you're in Paris. It's that simple. Yeah. When I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, I have a good time. I adore Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, you can watch Lake Erie burn. Uh, you can, you know, you can smell the lake from miles away. Uh, you can go have a, a salt beef sandwich or corned beef, whatnot. Uh, there's lots to do in Cleveland. You can watch the poor people roll down the street. <laughs> but when you're done with the gig, you're in Cleveland. Mm. Bit disappointing, that one. Yeah. Uh, when you're in Paris, you walk out of the gig, there's a restaurant open. Uh, uh, we, we did a reading in, at uh, uh, um, Shakespeare and Company earlier this year. And uh, while I was outside, we did it outside, sur la Seine, right? Right next to the river. Uh, I, I read the book, people were walking by, the bells of Notre Dame rang, there were sirens going off. It's just magic, you know, like, why would I want to go, uh, you know, other To Cleveland. Places? Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, not to suck up too much, but Scotland's beautiful, and we were talking about today. We come all the time, and we've been on holiday a few times here and there, and I've been all over because I used to tour uh, uh, the, the, the wonderful pseudo-nation that you have. And uh, uh, so I've been to Kirkcaldy and Stirling and Glenrothes and Aberdeen and, you know, uh, 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 Glasgow, Greenock, Paisley, whatnot, all over. And, um, and it's lovely. It's, it, it's really a sensational place. People are, have their own identity here. And... Um, you know, you can go to England and play like in Portsmouth or Southampton and they won't laugh through the whole show. And then at the end they applaud and you're like, where were you? <laughs> Whereas here, if no one laughs two minutes into it, someone's bound to go, this is shite! And then... <laughs> so it's a reaction. Well, then it makes me feel at home. <laughs> it's shite and you're near funny. Uh, well... Now we know he's a liar because we're all laughing our socks off. I'm going to whisk Greg away to the signing area in the bookshop. I don't think I've mentioned that the book is on sale in the bookshop and he will sign the it. Popular prices. Yes. First, before we leave, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Lee. No, 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 no. Thank you to Lee for helping me out. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.